The Holy Spirit, the Counselor, is the creative power, presence, and wisdom of God. The Spirit convicts people of sin, gives them new life, and guides them into all truth. By the Spirit, believers are baptized into one body. The indwelling Spirit testifies that they are God's children, distributes gifts for ministry, empowers for witness, and produces the fruit of righteousness. As Comforter, the Holy Spirit helps God's children in their weakness, intercedes for them according to God's will, and assures them of eternal life. Pretty significant role of the Spirit of God. This comes from our confession of faith as an MB conference about the role of the Spirit. We're in a series, if you've been around for the last while, that you know is uh, called One Big Story. And the goal of this series is to help us to understand all of Scripture and all of what the Bible teaches from a higher level of understanding how the different segments of Scripture are connected and to make sense of them in terms of one big story of God that we are invited into. It's an incredible story. It's a true story. The story of God among His people and God leading His people. And so we've had uh, various chapters, six uh, chapters so far of this story out of a total of eight. We started with creation. And then we went to the story of brokenness and sin and the effects of that. After that, the, the story of promise and God's promise to Abraham and to the people of Israel. And then it was the chapter of law. And then from there, it was the chapter of rebellion. And last week, Maureen spoke about the chapter of grace and how God intercedes and, and enters into this story with the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're on the next chapter, which is the Spirit and the church. And we're going to primarily be looking at Acts chapter 2, and so I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles there. We'll actually start in Acts chapter 1, but we're going to get to Acts chapter 2 right away, and that's where we'll primarily be focusing uh, on our uh, chapter here today. So I'm going to begin in just Acts chapter 1, so go there first, and I just want to touch on a few of the first verses there that sort of introduce us and connect us also to what Maureen was talking about last week in terms of the Gospels and the story of grace. And so in Acts chapter 1, uh, it's written by Luke, who was a physician. Luke was somebody who wrote very precisely. Details mattered to him. He was intentional about things and very precise in his accounts. And he says in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. And so here we see right away in chapter 1 of Luke's connection to his first book that he wrote. So what's his first book that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. And if you go back and you read the end of the Gospel of Luke, the very last verses, we won't take time to do that today, but you see some of the very similar language and the connections of how that ends and how Acts begins. Because it's really two books that Luke has written to give account that have a different purpose that he is writing about. And so the Gospels that Maureen was talking about last week in terms of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these first-hand accounts, these witness accounts, these testimonies of Jesus' birth, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all of these components are, are, are found there in these four Gospel stories, these four Gospel accounts. So much similarity, so much that is the same. Some distinct and unique differences as well too. And sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference in one of the why the differences? And one of the kind of simple examples I give, well, it's like if you have a family that goes on a trip and your family all goes to Calgary for the weekend and everybody goes and experiences the same thing. And you go and then you come back and you say, okay, now I want everybody to write an account of that trip. We all went to the same places and did the same things. And 
one person, you know, talks about, you know, the Gap, and another person talks about Nordstrom's or something like that, and another person talks about uh, Cookies by George. That would be me. Um, you know, and, and so why is it the different accounts? Well, because we experience similar things, but we all remember other things, and we have things that are important to us. Now, that's a simplified way of what's going on, but it gives a bit of a picture of these gospel accounts and some of the distinctives of them and what really mattered, inspired by the Spirit of God and how these people wrote about what happened. So then Luke continues, and he says in verse 3 and following in Acts chapter 1, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles, Jesus, to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So this ministry time of Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven was spent coming back and actually interacting with these disciples and showing them, proving to them, I'm alive. It's true. And we have to understand that the, the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection is actually the, is, is such a central premise to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was so important. It's what mattered. It was that Jesus died and he rose again. That's what Jesus was doing during that time in his ministry. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Isn't it interesting? I mean, they obviously had a very unique picture in their mind of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. A very unique picture in their mind of what the Messiah was going to do. And so they're even now asking him, okay, Jesus, when, when are you going to come and restore our kingdom? They were living under this impression of the Roman rulers at that time, and they had this different picture of the kingdom of God. And Jesus was still, even at this point, trying to teach them again about what the kingdom of God was about. And it was not about what they were thinking it was about. So Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that the kingdom of God is different than what you're picturing. It's not about political power or overthrowing a government. It is about a different kind of power that I will give you through my Holy Spirit that I will leave with you that will be the empowerment of the churches for witness to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a different kind of kingdom. And you are called to be my witnesses in this ever-increasing circle that expands and goes beyond where they are right now. And so the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to see, is for the witness of the church to the world. As you look through the rest of Acts chapter 1, it's this account of replacing Judas, who is the disciple, as you know, who betrayed Jesus and who committed suicide, and then they need to replace him. And so Matthias is the one who is chosen, and they go through that account of how that happens in the rest of Acts chapter 1. And so now they are 12 again. 12 of these apostles who had been with Jesus, who were transformed and were never going to be the same again. You know, as you think about the book of Acts, and I want to just take a minute to to kind of frame the entire book of Acts before we dive into Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts is giving us a picture of the Holy Spirit in a whole new way. Giving us a picture of the Holy Spirit in a new way that Jesus left 
His Spirit among His people and among His church. And sometimes we think, well, giving the Holy Spirit for the first time. Well, no, that actually isn't true. The Holy Spirit, we know and we need to understand, was there from the very beginning. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was there from the very beginning. We see that even in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 of the Spirit of God hovering above the water. And so it's not like the Spirit of God was not there. The Spirit of God was always present. But here we see that the Spirit of God is given in a unique way in the book of Acts. And it's interesting, even if you go back to Luke chapter 1, we see that the the Spirit of God is given in numerous places, like actually before that in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God involved and engaged in the lives of people in many places in the Old Testament. We also see that in the New Testament, even before this account that we see in Acts, I'll just point you to one, in in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, we see three really unique places where the Spirit of God was very evident before the Spirit was given in this way that we'll see in Acts chapter 2. So in Luke chapter 1, if you remember the story, if you're familiar with the story, it's about John the Baptist and also Jesus and Mary and Elizabeth. Now John the Baptist was about to be born and he was going to be the forerunner to Jesus. And John the Baptist, um, his parents were Elizabeth and Zechariah. And in Luke chapter 1, verse, uh, at the end of uh, verse 15, it says this about John the Baptist. It says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Interesting. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. If you go a little bit further on into uh, verse 41 of that chapter, it talks about Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is way before Acts chapter 2. Jesus wasn't even born yet nor was John the Baptist. Then you keep going, and and in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, then his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. So what I want us to see is that the Holy Spirit, it's not like the Holy Spirit was not there. The Holy Spirit was evident. In fact, people were even being filled with the Holy Spirit before this account that we see in in Acts chapter 2. But there's something unique that's happening here. Something that's different. Something that is new, that that God is doing a new work, a new presence, a new power of God among His people. And so we see in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of this mission impulse of the church in a way that had never happened before. What Jesus had called for in the Great Commission. When He said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, even in Acts 1, that text that we just read, that there'll be a rippling out effect from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that there will be this expanding call, this expanding witness. And all of Acts is actually the evidence of that. All of Acts is the outplay of that, of this rippling out into wider and wider circles of the Spirit in the church in an incredible way. The image that comes to my mind is, you know what it's like if you throw a rock in a pond? And you see the ripple effect that goes out in concentric circles. And that's sort of what the book of Acts is like. It's just this ripple effect of going out and ever expanding and ever increasing and ever widening and going broader and broader and broader. It's interesting how there are, there are six summary statements, just short verses in the book of Acts. And I want to just point them out to you that, that actually help us to see the work of the Spirit in the church and this kind of, they all mark kind of a new chapter that's coming next of this ever-widening circle of what God is doing through the Spirit and through the church. Now, it takes off in a new direction, either ethnically or geographically. And so first of all, it begins in Jerusalem. We're going to see right away in a minute, Acts chapter 2 begins right there in Jerusalem. It starts there, but then it starts to expand out and go beyond Jerusalem. 
And in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, here's this, this summary statement. It said, so God's message, message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. And then it's like the story takes another course. And another kind of chapter starts. Because then it spreads to Judea and Samaria. And if you read the next chapters, you'll, you'll see how it spreads to these ever next regions in the next number of chapters in Acts. And then in Acts 9.31, this summary statement again. A hinge point of something else is now about to happen. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. So again, the work of the Holy Spirit and the church happening and, and going out in ever-increasing and widening circles of this, this mission of God going out to the nations of the earth. And then it goes beyond. It spreads now to the Gentiles. If you remember the account of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, that's found in this next little segment here, as it goes out to the Gentiles in a very remarkable and unsettling way for the Jewish believers. But then in Acts 12 verse 24, we begin this summary statement. It says, meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. And then it spreads to Asia. And in Acts chapter 15, and if you read the the, the chapters that are in between there, in Acts chapter 16 verse 5, this Hinge statement again. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. And then it spreads to Europe. And it goes farther. And you read the chapters that follow in between and you see how it spreads there. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had powerful effect. Again, this summary statement that comes there. And then finally, it goes to Rome. And at the end of the book of Acts, you see Paul there in Rome and writing and beginning to write these letters to the churches and so on and so forth, and and how the message of God now goes to the epicenter of power of that day. An incredible story. An incredible account of the Spirit and the church at work. You know what comes to mind for me? I go back to that chapter that we did a number of weeks ago about the promise. About the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Abraham, if you will go, and if you will leave, and if you will take this blessing of God to the nations and the families of the earth. I will bless you. And Abraham did. And he is called to bring this message of God, this gospel message of hope and promise. And, and he brings it, and now it's seeing its fulfillment, and it's happening in ways that, the, that Abraham could have never imagined. And so it's going out, being fulfilled, the salvation and blessing of God to the nations of the earth. And as you read the accounts in Acts, you see that the Spirit of God is ultimately responsible for every single turning point. Everything that's happening in the church. The Spirit is the driving force behind this gospel movement. This unstoppable force that no human entity or opposition can oppose. And so in Acts, you just see this relentless hope of the gospel going forward as the church expands and goes forward because of God's Spirit. This ever-increasing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So if we think of the book of Acts as the rock in the pond, or as this ripple effect going out, then we need to think of Acts chapter 2 is where that big massive rock got kind of thrown into the pond. Alunk. You know that sound? And then it just goes echoing out from there. Acts chapter 2 is like the epicenter of that. Where it just begins and the Spirit of God comes upon these people. And there are three key themes that we see in Acts chapter 2 that... I want us to understand and they'll sort of frame the rest of what I want to share here this morning. Three key themes that are introduced in Acts chapter 2 that are so important for us to get. First of all, the fullness of the Spirit. 
What does it mean to have the fullness of the Spirit in our lives? Secondly, the evangelical witness of the church. And then thirdly, the community life of the believers. That these three things were so evident there in Acts chapter 2 where this ripple effect started and where the Spirit of God came upon the people and started to ripple out in these ways. And so we'll walk through each one of these just briefly here this morning. But first of all, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, just representing this fullness of the Spirit that we see. So it says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. So there they are in Jerusalem. Okay, Pente means 50. So it's this 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, 50 days after the Passover celebration. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And so it's this 50 days that they are meeting there together. And uh, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at that time there were de- devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And they were completely amazed. How can this be? These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And here we are, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. And they asked each other, what could this mean? Wind and fire are two images that are common biblical symbols that represent the presence of God and the power of God through His Spirit. If you think about fire and you think about uh, the burning bush when Moses encountered God there in a very personal, intimate way, it was the, the presence of God. In fact, God even commanded him to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And if you think of the people of Israel and how they were led by the, the cloud, at, the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And so this fire representing the presence of God, the leading of God and the spirit of God is something that we understand as you read scripture that these images of fire and wind are so prevalent throughout scripture, good images that help us to understand. In fact, in Greek and Hebrew, the words for spirit actually also mean wind and breath in both Greek and Hebrew. And so they they mean wind and breath, that is the breath of God, the wind of God, and so on. Which is why even the the image of a kite is such a good image for us to understand that that we see movement of God. We don't see always the evidence of the wind, or we don't see the reality of the wind, but we see the evidence of the wind in terms of what it does and how it interacts with other things. But here we see something unique, as I said, happening in Acts chapter 2 of this fire coming down on each individual. There's this individual presence and power of the Holy Spirit that is given. Still to be used in community, but the corporate now seems to arise out of a personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And these people, they began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as it says, different tongues. Now, as you look at this text and what it's speaking about, I don't think it's speaking about the similar tongues that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, which I'm not saying are not I'm not negating those are real, and I truly believe that these gifts are still evident for the church today. The gift of tongues and some of these supernatural gifts, I believe, are still there for the church 
today. But I think it's different what is being spoken about here actually in Acts chapter 2 because everybody understands the language. When Paul's speaking about tongues in Acts chapter 12 to 14, he's actually talking about a, a gift that people can't understand unless there's an interpreter. Whereas here, people are actually speaking in all these different languages and people are amazed because they can understand. And they're going, I get it, I hear it, I can understand that, that these people are giving testimony and glory to God in my language. How is that possible? So it's a beautiful picture of what some have referred to as the great reversal. And I referred to this a number of weeks ago in the chapter of rebellion that we talked about in Genesis 3 to 11. And how at the end of Genesis 11, there's this account of the story of Babel. And if you understand or you remember back to childhood stories or are more familiar with that part of Scripture, you will remember this Tower of Babel account where these people started to build this tower out of pride because they wanted to become like God and make a famous name for themselves. And how God then dispersed them and confused their language and He sent them away and they couldn't understand each other and He mixed up their languages and the languages were formed there and they were dispersed. And now we see in Acts chapter 2 the great reversal of God doing a very new thing. Because we have all these people of all these nations and all these different places and ethnicities and backgrounds and understandings and they all come back together in one place and they understand each other. It's the complete opposite of the Tower of Babel. And it's this picture of God doing a new work among humanity. About God doing a new work through His Holy Spirit in a new way. And it's this beautiful picture of grace. So Babel and Eden are redeemed. The effects are nullified. And there's this great reversal of confused language. The barriers that have been put in place have now been taken down. There's this new humanity in Christ. And they're able to tell of the greatness of God in their own language and they all understood it. The second part is the witness of the church. We don't have time to walk through all of the verses in the middle section from verse uh, 13 on uh, to the end of, of 41. But let me just say a few things about that. Is that this is a, a time of witness. And we'll see in just a minute how Peter got up because... People are saying, well, how is this happening? Well, some said, well, they're just drunk. I mean, they've just been drinking too much early in the morning. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not the case. It's nine in the morning. There's something else going on. And so Peter stands up and he stands up with the other 11 disciples because now they have called Matthias to join their group again. So there's 12 of them again. And they stand before these people and they start to give testimony. And they start to give witness accounts of what they have seen and heard and what they have experienced through Jesus Christ. And they're talking about the truth and, and they're proving the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the testimony that they are giving. So if you think about it, what is the primary role of a witness? I mean, if you think about even our court system or judicial system, a witness gives testimony to what they have seen and heard, right? I mean, that's what your role is as a witness. A witness is called, come and give testimony. What do you give testimony to? Well, this is what I have seen and heard. That's what a witness does. They verbalize those things. I've had a few unique opportunities to be a witness in different things, some that I just took upon myself. Uh, one time I was sitting in a restaurant with Lisa. We were in a downtown restaurant right by the window, and we saw this interesting thing happen right outside the front door. And this guy had a truck parked there, and he got out of it very quickly, and he took off. And there was a woman who came up later, and she was just pulled behind, and she was very upset at him for some reason. I don't know what was going on. And she got out, and she walked beside his truck, and she looks around her, and she takes her key, and she keys the whole side of his truck and just grinds it in, and then she takes off her vehicle. I took down her license plate. I thought, this is interesting. 
And I wrote a little note, and I didn't know where the guy went, and so I just wrote a little note, and I put it on his little windshield, and I said, you know what, uh, here's what I saw happen. I don't know what's going on. Here's my name and number. Call me if you need a witness. He was very thankful for that. He called me, and he told me the story, and I won't get into it. It doesn't matter. But I was able to give a witness account to something that had happened. I was also in the States once, and I went shopping, uh, and I was going to this Sears store in this mall, and it was almost an empty parking lot. And I don't remember even what city I was in. I just remember this story. Because I'm driving up in this relatively empty parking lot, and this guy comes booking out of the Sears outlet thing, and he's got this huge power toolbox under his arm, and he is running full speed, okay? Now, there's no receipt on it, and there's no bag around it, and he's just going for it. He jumps into his car. He takes off, squealing tires. I'm still in my car, so I follow him. I get his license plate. I think, it's interesting. I go into the store, and I try to find somebody, and I talk to the manager, and I talk to three people about what I saw, and they didn't care. It's like nobody cared. They couldn't be bothered. I thought, hmm, maybe I'll pick up a few things. <laughs> Don't even have to run. A witness gives testimony to what you see, right? But in this text and in this story and what we're understanding in Acts is also a witness does more than that. A witness is also who you are because our lives are also a witness. A witness does need to verbalize, does need to give testimony. But a witness, and we know that, that often our lives are more of a witness or at least as much of a witness than what we say. And you know what? Every time Jesus is on trial in our culture, whether it's in your workplace or in the media or in your family or in any con on context like that, we are the evidence. Your life is giving testimony in that moment when Jesus is on trial. You need to think about that. That when Jesus is on trial in our culture, that, that our lives are the evidence. We are giving testimony, whether we like it or not, to whether the truth of this gospel is actually real. And so the question that we would ask ourselves is, what is it that we are witnessing? It's not, do we witness or are we? We are. It's, what is the witness that we are giving? What is the testimony? What is the evidence that we are giving in our lives? Do people see the power of the resurrection of Jesus in any way in our lives? Do people see the hope of the gospel? Do people see the joy of our salvation in any way, do, do they see that? Because, again, when Jesus is on trial, we are the evidence. And so the question is, is what kind of testimony are we giving? So I, in our discipleship steps, as we've been unpacking them and talking about them as a church, and one of them is to experience and to model Jesus' love. Because it's not about enough about just giving testimony and verbalizing it, but do you, have you actually experienced the love of Jesus in your own life? Because if you haven't experienced the love of Jesus and if it hasn't permeated your life and actually changed who you are, then you have nothing really to say because it's pure marketing after that. And so unless Jesus has impacted your life and the love of Christ has changed you, then that, that becomes the permeating thing of your testimony. And that's what goes out in front of you that people see already before you say anything. And so have you experienced the love of Jesus? No, you're modeling it in your workplaces, in your families as you... Go along in your daily life. What is it that people see? And so as a church, we are called to witness, not to convince people, 
But God is saying, you are my evidence. So what kind of evidence are you being? So the purpose of the Spirit we see in Acts chapter 2 is for the witness of the church and to proclaim the gospel. So Peter and the 11 apostles, they stand up and they give witness and testimony and evidence to what people are seeing about who Jesus is, about what it is that they are needing to understand. And that's what they're pointing to in this middle section of Acts chapter 2. And it, in, in, uh, he, he, Peter goes back to the prophets and he, he talks about what it says in the Psalms. And then he goes to the story of David and the teaching and he brings forward the truth that is found there. And then he says what we read in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. He says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. And it causes transformation. It causes this radical change because of the work of the Spirit. And I'm, I'm convinced that it's not because of brilliance in, on Peter's part in terms of his words and the way he was able to communicate. But it's only because of the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment that people were convicted. They were cut to the core. It says that Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said, what, what, what do we do? What do we need to do? And Peter says, you need to repent of your sins and turn to God. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. And take this message to your children, to the Gentiles, and so on. 3,000 were added to their number that day. That is only a work of the Spirit. That is nothing that any human can do. And so we see the Spirit and the church going hand in hand in such an intimate way. And then we come to those last verses in verse 42 to the end. Because you see, again, how they lived in community, how they were going to live as a church, how we live as a church today, again, is evidence, is witness to the truth of the Gospel and the hope of the resurrection. And so the last verses in chapter 2 are also giving evidence to this community life about how they lived as a community of believers. And for some of us, we read these verses and it's kind of unsettling. We're not exactly sure what to do with it. They make us maybe nervous, at least the latter ones do. Let me just read it. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. You see right there some of the fundamental aspects of, of any church that need to be just part of that component which is why those things are so important for us as well too, of being the church. But that, that your believers are devoted to teaching. That's why you come and gather together to be under teaching, to train one another, and to teach one another, to disciple one another. They're also committed to fellowship, of being, being together and, and living life together in one way or another, in sharing meals together. Just that hospitality as well as the Lord's table, the Lord's supper of doing communion together as we do. And then also to prayer, being people of deep prayer. And it says in verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So here we see this covenant community. We describe that even right in our mission statement. And all those things in our mission statement are found even right here in this text. We talk about being a covenant community that loves God, disciples one another, and reaches out from the river to the ends of the earth. And these people are truly covenant people. 
the new covenant of Jesus Christ. This new covenant of Jesus, of God himself who came in, in the form of a baby and who died on a cross for our sins. And when Jesus instructed his disciples about what the bread and the cup mean, he says, this is the new covenant I give to you. These are covenant community people. They were a generous community. They practiced hospitality in radical ways. And it begs us the question of how do we be a more generous community? They're an intentional community. They kept these four things front and center to what they did. They didn't get distracted by all the other things they could do as well too, but they also were an intentional community and they were a committed community. They were committed to one another, to walk together, to challenge each other, to encourage each other, to share together, to do what it took to be the body of Christ together. So for us, the question is, how is God calling us to live more in this way? Because as we do, we become a more effective witness to the world. As we do, it changes how we live as a witness. And it says how God added to their number. You know, so as you read the rest of the New Testament right up to Revelation, which we'll get to next week, but as you read the rest of the New Testament and these letters that are written to the churches and to the church leaders, and most of which are written by Paul, who, who writes these letters, whether it's Rome or the church in Corinth or in Ephesus or in Galatia, and he writes these letters, what he's doing is he's, He's doing this working out of the Holy Spirit in the church. Here's how you live as the church with the Spirit of God among you and within you. That's why this chapter is such an incredible, large chapter of this incredible story of God. It takes up so much of the New Testament of where we see the church working this out. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? To live by the power of the Spirit. That these things could actually be within us now. Not just then, but also now. The fullness of the Spirit. That we wouldn't go on either extreme of, of the charismania where there's an overemphasis of only certain things or on the other side, the charisphobia of actually being paranoid and just hiding away from anything, but that we would actually be inviting the Spirit of God to do whatever He wants to do in our midst, to give us whatever the gifts that He wants to give us, to use them in whatever way He wants to use them. And that we would do that as a church in the fullness of the Spirit. That we would also be the church of evangelical witness because of the transformation that has happened within us individually and corporately. And then lastly, that the community life of the believers matters. How we live together matters. I want to just encourage you today that if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that He rose from the dead, you have the Spirit of God living within you. You need to know that. You have the Spirit of God living within you. And I am convinced that so often we suppress the Spirit in our lives and we want just a little bit, but we don't want too much. And that we might pray for more of the fullness of the Spirit of God among us and within us. That God could use us for better witness. Bring the blessing of God to the nations of the earth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this incredible account of what happened way back then, of Your Spirit descending on these people in such a unique way that it changed everything. Thank You for Your Spirit and the church. Thank You for Your Spirit in the church. Thank You that the church is made up of us as individual people and it is Your Spirit within Your people, Lord. And I pray that You would help us to understand that. And God, that You would make us more and more transform and more and more in your image by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to be more effective witnesses?
And Lord, that we would remove the things that distract and distort our witness, that cause people to look at the church and say, wow, that doesn't look that transformed or loving or kind or changed. God, may we be different kinds of people for the witness that you have called us to. So Father, I thank you and I praise you for what you have done and what you are doing. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.